Hey, everybody, welcome to the Metaverse podcast hosted by me, Jamie Burke, CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures. Our mission is to accelerate the open metaverse based on principles around the sovereignty of identity, data and wealth. On this podcast, we meet the leading founders, creators and innovators and hear their personal stories and mission to make the metaverse more open. On today's episode, we're talking to Ryan Condren, CEO and co-founder of Titan Industries, but also creator of Lumerin. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Jamie. It's great to be on. We've been working in the Outlier Ascent program, which is a program that we run for the acceleration of later stage projects. Um, I think we've been working together for under a year, almost a year. Times uh, yeah, I would say just uh, just under a year, actually. Yeah. So COVID's, of course, like bl- blurred time dimensions. It really has. It's, yeah. it's, it's even weirder. But nevertheless, you, you guys have been making great progress and you've got some key milestones about to happen. I'll let you talk about that. Um, so as I said, there's both Titan Industries and there's Lumerian and, and we'll kind of untangle those two things and how they kind of complement one another. I'll, I'll give a an attempt at a first intro. So Titan is a next generation, efficient, transparent mining pool and software for monitoring, managing and optimizing your mining operations at any scale. And of course, there's um, whilst you do work primarily with larger operations, the idea is it can also democratize uh, mining. I know something very important to you and your mission at Titan. Um, Lumen is a smart contract protocol for provable programmable hash rate, making global mining smarter and more efficient. And on top of Lumerin, you're building a network marketplace for exchanging hash power. Um, so some of the reasons why I've got you in the show, and I think, so, so of course, we, we want to hear about Lumerin, we want to hear about Titan, but you know, Bitcoin generally, mining, proof of work, that in a climate context, <laughs> the kind of shift of hash from China, uh, to the US, Canada. Um, these are all like highly topical things. Yep. Of course, recent infrastructure bill and the implications of that for people participating in networks, especially proof of work networks, um, is is kind of a, a kind of headwind that um, of course the wider crypto industry is is facing. And so I want to kind of navigate all of this with you, and then, of course, unpack um, specifically the role of, of Lumerian in all of this and, and how um, it can make the Bitcoin network more more optimal, more efficient, yeah. more effective. And, um, and, of course, we have the next four hours to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, right? Yeah, so, we, we've got, like, roughly 30 minutes. <laughs> so, don't ask me how we're going to going to cover all that but of course you know we've had the pleasure of, of chatting before so um hopefully i can kind of i'm familiar enough with you that we we can kind of get through some of those key concepts uh, relatively quickly yeah. um and as i said there's been lots going on your side lots of announcements um including a private pool um investment from coinbase ventures uh you've established the first enterprise grade bitcoin mining pool in north america and now you've got tens of customers some of which you can reference <laughs> some of which you can't because many of those are going public of course um and especially those kind of larger facilities that you've been that you've been working with i know yeah. um 
Coinmint and uh, Core Scientific are two that I think we can name. But let's let's kind of just start at the top. Like, what's going on in the context of Bitcoin, proof of work, and hash power at kind of a, a market or or network level? Yeah, um, you know that I think that's a that's a great place to start. Um, I got involved in mining in late 2012, and it was a hobby. Right, uh, we were we were building mining rigs in our garages. We were um, playing around with the software. We were doing profitability calculations. Uh, what we've seen over the past, you know, five, six, uh, seven years, is it's it's become an industry, um, and we're slowly moving from mining um, as an industry now to mining as core infrastructure. Um, as we see Bitcoin uh, continue to scale, more and more financial institutions get involved. Now we're seeing more governments get involved. You know, and this is this has been the flight path that we've all seen and know was going to come. Um, you know, the, the true believers, if you will, early on knew that this was going to be coming, um, and now we're we're finally seeing it. Um, people are really starting to focus back on mining. Um, sadly enough, the mining ecosystem was kind of forgotten and overlooked for you know, probably the last uh, good six or seven years. Um, and now we're coming full tilt back to mining and people are realizing that it is core infrastructure for the future of not only currency, identity, um, data security, uh, Web3, and of course, the metaverse. And so, I mean, let, let's just start at the, the kind of proof of work is bad for the world <laughs> debate. Because, um, yeah. I, I mean, you must have to face this still, even today, all the time. Um, let, let's just head off that first. You know, what is the, the footprint of um, proof of work? And, you know, I, I guess, how is that kind of comparable to, to alternatives? Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it's funny because when, when we start with a question like that, we're already three or four assumptions in. Um, whereas, you know, if we back up and we say, okay, proof of work is bad for the environment, but you know, why? Well, proof of work uses a lot of electricity. So the assumption is using electricity is bad for the environment. Um, and then we take a step into that and we say, well, the assumption is that producing electricity is bad for the environment. Therefore, consuming electricity is bad for the environment. Therefore, Bitcoin mining is bad. And as we start unraveling the logic, um, behind it all, um, you'll start realizing that there's a lot of fallacies that this was founded on. One of the first fallacies that I've run into a lot was um, the people that I interact with don't actually even understand really how an electricity grid works or electric grid works as far as um, load always has to equal um, production. Um, you can't produce electricity unless there's someone actively using the electricity. So what we currently do in electricity generation is called load following. So when we start seeing the demand for electricity go up, we actually have to increase production. And when we see the need for electricity going down, we actually have to decrease production. What happens if we uh, produce uh, too much or not enough electricity, um, we actually change the frequency at which the electricity is transmitted. So here in the States, it's about 60 hertz. Um, and we have a, a tolerance of about 0.03 hertz um, to go above or below that before we start um, ruining things that are on the electrical grid. Um, so that's like foundational, like education number one when I'm talking to people about why is why is proof of work bad for the environment? Well, first of all, it's not. And then I, I start winding it back to, well, this is how an electricity grid works. And this is how production works. And the reality is, 
if we really want to move over to renewables as a core production of our electricity grid, we need to not do production following anymore, but we have to, I'm sorry, we, we can't be doing load following anymore, but we actually have to do what's called production following, where we build out renewables to um, provide 100% electricity 100% of the time for max amount of load. Um, and then we actually uh, ramp up and ramp down uh, proof of work mining to counteract the the renewables grid. Um, now, I just I gave you probably a, a 60 second elevator pitch of something that's like incredibly long, like in depth, like very complicated topic. Um, if I were to summarize it all, I would just say, uh, you know, using electricity is not bad for the environment, but we have to be cognizant about the way we produce electricity. And I believe that, um, you know, especially here in the States, you know, we've been very, very, and, and especially in Europe too, we've been, we've been very cognizant about renewables and how we produce electricity as being uh, good stewards of the planet that we live on. Um, and, the, and the more we, we educate and the more we produce electricity in a renewable way, um, then the, the entire narrative of Bitcoin mining being bad for the environment doesn't even you know, move the needle. It doesn't even register. Right. And then, of course, that's linked to, to where the energy is produced, you know, where the, where the mining happens. Of course, we've had El Salvador very recently um, towards, where are we now, tail end of November 2021, um, talk about creating a Bitcoin city next to a volcano <laughs> raises some alarm bells for me. But hey, uh, if that's well, where we I want mean. to send all the Bitcoin maxis, <laughs> I'm I'm okay with that. Um, and then, of course, you also have this shift of hash power out of China. Now, having worked with you for over a year, I know that that shift has already been happening. Um, hash is being distributed, especially in a North American context, for um, you know several years prior to the kind of lockdown in China. But then equally, I believe the argument of the carbon footprint of Bitcoin was heavily predicated on the fact that um, a lot of it was produced from kind of coal and stuff in, in China. So could you talk about the kind of shift in hash rate, how that is relative to the carbon footprint, but then also, I guess, other factors that that may um, see a professionalization or an improvement or a reduction in the possibility of capture of the network. Yeah. I mean, first, so El Salvador, um, you know, what they're doing there, it, it, it seems uh, pretty amazing. And the thing about fast that really fascinates me about these countries that they kind of embrace Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies you know, especially El Salvador and South America, where we've seen uh, more poverty and we consider them more of a third world economic system. I really wonder how that's going to shift as they embrace these cryptocurrencies and these cryptocurrencies grow in value in the first world sectors. I'm really wondering how these, uh, if these, what we used to call third world countries become some of the richest countries on earth because the populace has embraced crypto so early on. Um, so that, that stuff excites me. Um, mining on the side of a volcano is absolutely fascinating. Um, it really brings to this uh, the forefront and highlight of how much what we call stranded energy there is um, in this world. Um, so we, we know, obviously, in Iceland, there's tons of geothermic energy. Uh, we capture that. It's incredibly cheap energy to utilize, um, especially for mining and um, other uh, you know, data center type operations. 
Um, there, but that's just one case. So uh, the geothermic energy that comes off a volcano is very substantial. Uh, obviously, it has its inherent risks. You're on the side of a volcano. Um, but it is absolutely fascinating um, that what we've done with Bitcoin mining is we've essentially put a you know trillion dollar bounty on finding cheap energy. Um, and so you have people inventing new ways of producing energy. You have people uh, finding all this stranded energy all over the globe. And it's really, it, it's really just amazing how um, just the, the ingenuity that people have come up with um, to harness this electricity. Um, so that, that's on El Salvador. With uh, China, I mean, we saw a massive swing in hash rate, right? So we saw... Um, the, the hash rate on the network was 150 to 160 exahashes, and we saw it drop like in half. Um, so when when China did the crackdown, we had kind of speculation of how much hash power was in China. Um, a lot of this is, you know, once again, this is a decentralized network. Um, we don't have a lot of transparency in, you know, who's producing blocks or where the hash power is coming from. Um, but when we saw a lot of these facilities coming offline in China and we just saw the hash rate and network difficulty um, drop in, essentially in half, uh, we quickly realized that, you know, the amount of hash rate China actually had. Now, in China, a lot of the electricity is from hydroelectric, um, but it is uh, in, in certain regions and then it's coal in other regions. Um, so there is a mix of... Um, uh, heavy carbon production, in, you know, in the electricity production in China. Um, as we start seeing, the, so, and this is a speculation, right? Like, we don't have exact proof, we don't have exact numbers, but we're speculating that as the hash rate flows into America, flows into South America or Europe, and and out of um, these uh, areas of China that were coal powered, um, that we're going to have essentially a a better environmental outcome. Uh, you know, so. That's that's the assumption. I haven't actually seen hard numbers to back that, um, but just at a high level, that seems to be a, a very logical assumption to make. You know, as far as where these miners are going, um, you know, I personally know of a lot of them that actually have landed in Texas. Uh, amazingly enough, Texas is becoming almost the the hub of cheap electricity and state-of-the-art mining in the world. Um, some of the largest facilities, 100% uh, renewable facilities, um, some of the, you know, the largest liquid-cooled facilities are all located in Texas. Um, and they're proud to, you know, they're, they're proud to take up that, that banner. So it's, it's really exciting to see how the entire like, industry in Texas is shifting towards a Bitcoin-centric uh, industry. And then there's this kind of geopolitical component, right? Because I know the other criticism um, of the speculation of so much hash power in um, China was that it could be captured by the Chinese government if it wanted to. Um, and clearly that, that's now also been removed as that hash has had to be better distributed around the world in kind of more um, liberal kind of democracies. Yeah, so the... I mean, there's there's always been that that narrative of you know China can take control of anything at any point, um, you know, and, and we've seen that historically with other industries or other areas of their economy, you know, and there there was always that fear with with hash power also, um, you know, China started uh, making 
I guess, rules or edicts against uh, different aspects of crypto, I think as early as 2013, you know, we started seeing the, the exchanges being shut down and we started seeing the, you know, the, the now the miners being shut down and, you know, the pools are moving out. And we're just seeing kind of a systematic push out of crypto uh, from China. Um, the, you know, as far as the Chinese government taking control of the miners, I don't know if that was ever plausible. But what I will say is um, the centralized pools and how much hash rate that they have, I would say that's more of a growing concern than necessarily the geolocation of the miners themselves. You know, what we see in this in the pool model in the Bitcoin network is, you know, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I believe it's a, the top three pools control the majority of the hash rate. I believe it's just over 50% of the hash rate. Um, so you could essentially have three pools on the Bitcoin network um, can collude to adopt, you know, BIPs or to block BIPs or to whitelist addresses or blacklist addresses. And they could essentially um, control half the network, um, three entities. Um, you know, I'm a huge proponent of decentralization, and I've recognized early on that we're not going to be able to keep the actual physical mining devices decentralized. Um, and that's really actually where the Lumeran protocol comes into this entire picture is we've found a way to decentralize um, the control of hash rate where we can actually decouple um, where the hash rate is created from where it's controlled. Um, and that way we can actually provide a larger democracy uh, when it comes to where the hash rate's going. Um, currently, you have a, a large facility that's running several hundred thousand mining devices, and they'll point all those mining devices towards a single pool. Um, the vision we have with Lumeran is the owner of that facility would put 100,000 devices up for sale in an open marketplace. and anyone can purchase the control of that hash rate and then they can control those devices through a decentralized network and actually point those devices at any pool they'd like. Um, you know, th this way we, we can remove the, the centralized control from the few top pools or even the top 10 pools. You know, ideally we would have, you know, uh, that scattered through, you know, 20, 30 pools. Um, but that's, you know, we'll see we'll see how far we can get you know for, for now we, we'd settle to uh just start decentralizing the control from the top three anyways yeah and that makes sense and so you, you kind of decoupled as you say control from the actual facility or the centralization of the the physical hardware um so why would a why would a, a facility do that if i'm a top three or even top 10 um pool why would i want to effectively tokenize hash power. Yeah. So on, on the pool side, I'm not sure that the, well, we did see this with Poolin. So Poolin made a play to tokenize hash power. Um, it was a centralized play, um, but I, and I don't think it played out the way they're expecting it to. Um, you know, what we're really thinking is large at scale miners. There's a couple of reasons why they would want to tokenize their hash power or put their hash power up for sale. Um, you know, for, you know, one reason would be to, um, uh, to uh, counterbalance the risk or head, hedge against uh, the risk. So, for example, uh, right now we're in a bull market. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is flying high. Profitability is an all-time high. If a miner wants to capture that moving into the future, 
they could create what we called a cloud hashing product, essentially a futures market for hash rate. And they could sell off their hash rate into the future uh, for a guaranteed price. It might not be this all-time high price, but they might back it off a little bit to sell it off for the next uh, 12 months or 24 months. Uh, what that allows a miner to do is they capture liquidity up front and they actually sell off the risk to someone else that would like to capture that risk. Um, maybe they're speculating the market's going to go even higher um, and the miner's speculating it's going to go lower. So it's really this... Um, it's really this idea that uh, miners can um, get liquidity out of their hash rate moving into the future. So that's, I think, one case for it. Um, another case why a miner would sell off control. I'm, at the end of the day, all these cases are going to be all rooted in the same thing. It's going to be greater profitability and financial gain for the miner. Um, and that's really, at the end of the day, I would say miners are profit-driven animals. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at the profitability targets for the network based on our cost of electricity. And if it, if it makes sense and we keep our OPEX low, um, you know, then we scale as, as much as possible inside those numbers. Um, and that's, that's our profit. Um, if uh, we want to get more of that profit or if we want to find a way to hedge our risk, it's going to be selling off futures, selling off hash rate products, um, or we find a way to sell our hash rate for a premium. And what that would look like is, um, this is the example I often use, is if uh, you know, a large financial institution, uh, say like Chase or Fidelity or Visa, or you know, someone that is in the financial space that might eventually have a vested interest in producing a Bitcoin block or to mine transactions in a certain order in a block or even mine their own transactions in a block. Um, if they want to do that, they need to have hash power. And the only way they're going to get hash power is they either buy the mining devices or they, they actually buy the hash rate on an open market. Um, and if they're going to buy the hash rate on the open market in enough uh, of a, um, you know, a large enough amount in order to produce a block, um, they're going to most likely pay a premium for it, which then filters down to the miner, which means a better profitability. Um, and this is really, this is the dawn of treating hash power as a commodity where it actually has value outside of it just, it's, it's uh, actual production uh, value, if you will. Moving from, you know, hash power as a hobby um, is what, you know, I originally started with. Uh, we moved into an industry. Uh, now we're going to have a core infrastructure. And once it hits core infrastructure, that's when we start treating hash power as a commodity. Um, that That is the secondary markets. This is a fully decentralized, digital, trustless commodity that is globally traded. And that's that's something really the world hasn't worked with before. Yeah, very cool. And you know, we 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 talk all all the time, or at least you know, maybe within our echo chamber of as all of these things as digital commodities. But I think you know, this is perhaps one of the first steps to to actually turn you know a part of the crypto industry infrastructure into a into a commodity that can enjoy the financialization and everything that comes with it um, in the context of uh, kind of traditional capital markets and stuff. So, so where does, so I, I mean, I think that it feels, hopefully it feels as logical to the listener as it, it did to us when we began working with you. I think you articulated it, it really well. Um, so uh, two more things. Could you just talk us through, I guess, um, the, the state of 
uh, of the network to date of, of Lumarin, you know, its progress, its maturity. And then after that, explain how how that fits in with, with Titan, Titan being the, the kind of company, right? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so we started with Titan early on, um, focusing on making mining as highly optimized and profitable as possible through better software. Um, that The first stop there was better management software for at-scale facilities. Uh, and since then, we've moved on to writing better pool software. Um, and a lot of this is very strategic, um, and I'll explain to you why uh, and how it all kind of uh, dovetails here. Um, for for Lumeron, it is a decentralized protocol, um, so it's it's completely you know separate from Titan in that regard. Um, the the Lumeron network, uh, so we're we're actually about two months away from launching stage one of the Lumeron protocol. Um, it's going to be initially launched on top of Ethereum in a series of smart contracts that will govern the protocol. Um, part of that is launching the token itself. Uh, once the the actual public token, ERC-20 token, is released, then we're going to be launching stage one of the protocol shortly after. That will allow someone to actually put hash power up for sale um, through Lumeron.io, and it will allow someone else to come along, purchase the hash rate with a Web3 wallet, so like MetaMask. And once they purchase the hash rate, they don't just get the rights to the hash rate, they actually control the hash rate. So, you know, it's up to the purchaser to point the hash rate that they just purchased um, to their own pool or their own endpoint in order to collect it. Um, this is kind of stage one of um, a commodity market, if you will. So, you know, to give you an analogy, it's this idea of uh, the original commodity market. If you wanted to buy a, um, a truckload of soybeans, um, you know, the you know, now, you know, you're not going to settle uh, on your truckload of soybeans every 24 hours. Most people never take uh, delivery of the commodities they trade. You know, you hear some uh, humorous stories every once in a while where someone accidentally, tr you know, signals to take delivery and they get a barge full of coal, you know, uh, <laughs> being delivered. Um, you Happened know, to it, everyone at least once. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it, um, it, if, if nothing else, it makes for good Reader's Digest stories. Um you know, for, for Lumeron, um, the, the example is, you know, the original commodities markets, you know, if you're going to be trading around a truckload of soybeans, um, at the end of the day, someone is going to take delivery of the soybeans. Someone will physically have control of the product that they purchased. And that's really where Lumeron starts is when you purchase the hash rate, you have physical control of the hash rate, or at least in this case, digital control of the hash rate that you purchased through your Web3 wallet. Um, so that's, that's like stage one. We're going to be launching that in about a month and a half, two months. Um, so that will be fully launched, fully public. People can buy and sell hash rate through a decentralized ecosystem. Um, moving from there, the plan is to, uh, tran uh, basically transfer all those smart contracts, the entire protocol, the token and everything onto our own chain plan with launching our own chain is not only then do we control the gas costs and the throughput of transactions, we get a lot more granular control over block production. And we're not having to share the, the same blockchain rails as a bunch of other projects on Ethereum. So it having our own specialized chain is really going to serve us in scaling um, this you know, decentralized ecosystem moving forward. Um, the trick is launching a new chain that's proof of work these days is very, very difficult. Um, that's why the majority of the new chains we see are all proof of stake. 
um, because you're essentially, once you distribute the token, you have decentralized consensus around the distribution of the token. With a proof of work network, it's a lot more difficult to launch these networks and keep them uh, decentralized early on, especially with the um, highly concentrated amount of compute power that people have built up over the years. Uh, so our strategy around this, and this is kind of where Titan comes into play, is Lumeron will be a merge mined network with Bitcoin. Um, so we're actually going to be utilizing the hash power of the Bitcoin network without taking away from it. So just like Dogecoin is merge mined with Litecoin, where they share the hash power and they they pretty much anchor their blocks in the other chain, uh, Lumeron will be that with Bitcoin. Um, but in order to have a merged mine network, you need to have pools that are willing to produce Bitcoin blocks to uh, to actually anchor your network. And that's why Titan is actually producing private mining pools. Um, so we are working with some of the world's largest miners, um, putting in private pools, and we're going to be presenting uh, Lumeron Network to them and working with them to be the initial backers and uh, essentially create security for the Lumeron Network by merge mining with their Bitcoin pools. Um, so it's, it's kind of this uh, twofold uh, strategy where we're providing these highly optimized private mining pools through Titan. Um, and it's going to become the security route for the Lumeron network uh, in the future. Very cool. And I'm assuming um, because you're initially leveraging the Ethereum network, and I would presume um, even when you create your own chain, there's going to be EVM compatibility or something that um, the this kind of the commodification of hash rate can be put to work in DeFi as well as collateral, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's this is the, the interesting thing is a lot of the DeFi products that we see currently are, for lack of a better term, almost ethereal, where it's, it's fully digital. Um, there's not a lot of real world tie in. Hash power is actually going to be one of the first products that you could trade buy and sell and trade in a tokenized manner that is, you know, real world. Um, so it's not just, you know, an NFT that you're trading back and forth, but it actually has a lot of implications in the real world. Um, and that's just that's just the start of it. Um, with the Lumeron protocol, the at its very base um, level, and maybe it, it would be better just to kind of start with that, is we're essentially brokering the opening and closing of TCP IP sockets um, through smart contract engagements. So that means... Um, I can issue a smart contract, whether it be on the Ethereum protocol, whether it be on the Lumeron, or sorry, the Ethereum network or the Lumeron network, or just really e any EVM chain. I can issue a smart contract that lays out the terms for which I open a data link to you as the buyer. Um, so through that data link, you know, we're starting with hash power. Right. So hash power is just a, it's a natural fit for this type of an ecosystem where we're opening and closing sockets based on a buyer and a seller um, routing hash rate. Um, but it doesn't have to stop there. That can, you know, because the Lumen protocol is literally just decentralized routing for decentralized networks, um, we can open and close these sockets for any type of a data stream. So whether you want to stream video, stream audio, stream decentralized compute. Um, we're really providing the rails um, for delivery of any type of digital commodity. Um, we're starting with hash power because the, the markets are there uh, intrinsically. 
but eventually there will be markets for other types of um, data routing. And, uh, and you can't have a commodity unless you can actually take delivery of it. And that's exactly what Lumen provides is the decentralized routing for these decentralized networks and DeFi products. Um, so, you know, that, that's a rabbit hole in itself. Um, I'm barely <laughs> scratching the surface. Uh, you know, it, it goes way deeper than that. Um, and, and all I have, you know, for your, for your listeners, if, if you guys geek out about this like I do, um, all you have to think about is VoIP. Uh, which is a voice over IP, uh, well, Lumeran opens and closes IP sockets. So we actually can broker VoIP calls through a smart contract, which means we can actually broker VoIP calls using an NFT, which means now, rather than having phone numbers, once Lumeran is at scale, we can actually broker uh, communication between two individuals uh, through a decentralized network. Um, and th that, that just, I mean, you want to talk metaverse, you want to talk like <laughs> blowing people's minds of what you can do with stuff like that. Um, you know, that's when we start getting excited. Right. Well, okay. Let, let's go there. Right. We've got another <laughs> kind of five, two, two, three minutes. Let, okay, let's go okay. big vision. Yeah. So let's say, you, you know, you, you solve this for Bitcoin, Lumen's functioning at scale. You've got multiple digital commodities now leveraging the network. What does that mean in the context of the metaverse? Yeah, so um, we broker communication, right? We're opening and closing sockets uh, based on rules in, in a smart contract. So, um, for example, uh, your phone number, okay? Your phone number is not owned by you. You, you, uh, you give out your phone number, which is given to you by a company, and you have to pay them every month in order to keep that phone number. Now, what has happened in this world is your phone number has somewhat become part of your identity. A lot of people use it for two-factor authentication, uh, logins, um, certain apps use it as that's your profile ID, um, but you don't even own that phone number. It's actually linked to a SIM card. And now we have, well, we've had things called SIM swap attacks where people will, you know, get their crypto stolen or accounts broken into because someone will steal their phone number. It's happened to me before and it's, it's happened to a lot of people. In the future, when we can actually broker communication through a smart contract, through, you know, for example, I own my Web3 wallet, you own your Web3 wallet. If I want to give you access to me for communication, I can actually issue you an NFT. And that NFT will actually define the rules that um, around which you can contact me. It can, without ever me having to give you an email address, I don't have to give you a phone number, I don't have to give you any information. All I have to do is assign your Web3 wallet an NFT, and that will allow you to actually open a direct socket from your Lumeran node to my Lumeran node to transmit whatever communication you want to me. Now, in that NFT, I get to define the rules of what type of communication, what type of transfer that's going to be, and the Lumeran protocol will actually adhere to that. Um, but what this actually means moving forward and what it means in the metaverse is we are actually taking back the control of communication to the individual. And this is something I believe about, like I, I get, uh, you know, goosebumps when I think about this, because as sovereign individuals in this world, we have given up the right of communication. We have telemarketers, we have spam, um, people spread our information all over the world. And we have, we have uh, lost the control and security of our own access to ourselves. Um, with something like Lumeran and using smart contracts and decentralized identity, we actually take that back. We actually can build an entire communication ecosystem 
uh, and define the control of who can access me, when they can access me, according to my rules. And it's all through my own digital identity. No one else controls that. And I don't have to pay a monthly fee to keep it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to sleep on that one. <laughs> um, and actually, we've not even had that conversation before, right? We've been quite in the trenches just on, you know, what is Titan? Um, what is Lumerin? And, and, and how do you get to, to this phase that you're about to go into now? Um, uh, so I am going to have to go away and think about that one, Ryan. But um, look, it's been fascinating having you on. Um, you know, I, I think going to be really exciting to see you know, this next stage for you in the evolution of both Titan and Network. We didn't even get time to talk about you and your <laughs> background and block and everything else. I think people are just going to have to go and, and go and do their own research. But there was just so much interesting stuff to unpack. Um, I think you did a great job. Um, I can tell you you've been um, <laughs> explaining this story a lot recently because how you've explained it's got, got, um, got really elegant. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Um, you mentioned, you know, some quite, what could be quite complex topics that rabbit holes people might want to go down. Is there any kind of resources that you would recommend for them to, to kind of, uh, go a bit deeper on any of the points that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so real fast to, you know, to contact us, to get involved, um, on the pool side, uh, titan.io, um, you know, reach out through there. Um, you can find our white paper. You can find some of the other uh, documentation we have on titan.io. Uh, Lumeran.io is the decentralized routing network. Check out Lumeran.io. Um, we're on you know Telegram, Twitter, and and all the, the standard areas. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely looking for people to get involved. You know, I've been in the space for a long time. Um, you know, just to touch on real fast, my background is electrical engineering and mathematics. Um, I've been in the mining space since 2012. I've worked on a lot of cool projects in the space early on. Um, and I'm really passionate about uh, keeping things trustless and decentralized and, and in the control of people. Um, that's, that's really where I, you know, my passion lies. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the communications layer, uh, that, that was kind of a nugget for you and your, uh, your uh, podcast here. Um, I haven't told very many people that like the full grander vision of where we're going with all this because it goes down a rabbit hole very, uh, um, very quickly. Oh, we got um, some alpha. Great. So, so you, got, you got some exclusive right there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, I'm still right. Like what I just explained to you, I'm still in the process of writing the white paper for it. <laughs> so uh, you got you got pre white paper exposure right there. Sometimes um, you just got to say it though, right? It's 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 sometimes yeah. easier to talk things through um, before you write them down. So well, look, I, I really appreciate that, Ryan. Um, it's been a pleasure working with you and the team. Really, you know, um, uh, your kind of commitment to the mission and purpose, both of Bitcoin um, and how you want to go about making it a better network, but also you've been very principled people to work with. So it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Likewise. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.